Well, good morning, everybody, and uh, welcome to our first ever streamed service. And uh, it's, you know what? It really actually helps me to be able to do this knowing that in real time, people are with me, <laughs> and people are watching this, and people are joining me. It makes a big difference. I've only been in one of your homes here in Port Alberni so far, and that's the home of the Rusts, and I can actually sit here and imagine Sean sitting in front of the big TV downstairs with Panna maybe b- beside him watching live stream. So just even to picture that in their home and in all of your homes, it makes a big difference. So we get to do this together, and uh, thanks for tuning in, or if you're going to watch later, thanks for watching later. And uh, we're going to take a look at this passage. I want to talk a little bit today about Mary uh, and the mother of Jesus, who by, you know, without a doubt, she is the most known character of Christmas next to Jesus, right? Uh, She occupies a huge part of this story. Uh, And we're told in this passage that Mary found favor with God and that she has been blessed and that God has done great things for her in all that's happening to her. And the first thing that strikes me about this is how much and how often this whole ordeal must have seemed actually more like a curse than a blessing to Mary. From her perspective, as she was having to live through this, I wonder how often this must have seemed more like punishment rather than favor from God. And of course, the thing that we can far too easily, you know, escapes our attention when we think back at this Christmas story from our modern perspective is what an absolutely scandalous scene this actually was for the majority of people who were witnessing it, for the majority of the people who actually knew Mary. In, in the day and age of first century Palestine, the average Jewish girl was, was married and probably having her first child somewhere between the ages of 13 and 16, if you can imagine that. And, and to make it much beyond 16 without being married and starting a family was considered far too late. <laughs> you were an old maid by then, by the age of 17 or 18, if you can imagine it. And and since we know that Mary was engaged, they're not married yet, she's just engaged or betrothed to Joseph, when these events took place, it would be very reasonable to assume that Mary was somewhere between the ages of probably 14, 15, maybe as young as 13. So here, if you can imagine it, here is this young girl, pregnant, not yet married, And her fiancé knows that it's not his baby. I mean, this is problematic. This doesn't look great. This is scandalous. It would be scandalous today. It was even more scandalous back then. And even if Joseph should let people think that it was his baby, you know, for a good Jewish engaged couple, that would still be scandalous. But, But the official story being that Mary was actually pregnant but still a virgin, (laughs) and and that somehow the power of the Most High has come upon her, overshadowed her, and the Holy Spirit has mysteriously impregnated her. I mean, my goodness, this is scandalous. I mean, if if a teenage pregnant girl tried to tell you that today, what would you think? And, And that story wouldn't be any more believable to the people back then. You know, it's frankly not surprising that nowhere in this story are Mary's parents or family mentioned, with the exception of Aunt Elizabeth, who also is having a miraculous pregnancy and was visited by an angel. They've probably all abandoned her, the rest of the family, 
in all likelihood, the rest of Mary's family is, is, has left her in some level of disgust, thinking that she has betrayed them all with her actions. And likely Elizabeth probably would have too, had she not been informed by the angel as to what was going on. I have no doubt that Mary must have often wondered exactly how it is that this was a blessing for her and how it was that God's favor was upon her and and how this was a great thing that God was doing for her. It must have seemed much different to her, a 13-year-old pregnant girl who must have been confused and wondering, what's happening to me? How did this all happen? What's it all about? Why? And then there's the whole stigma and scorn that must have come along with this from the surrounding community. You know, to be so doubted by others. Maybe even she's come to the point of doubting herself and what she heard and retracing sort of the history of what's happened in the last few weeks and thinking, did that all really happen? Or am I just imagining some of that? And I've often wondered why. God chose to do all of this in such a questionable, such an apparently scandalous way. I mean, this must have caused a lot of hurt for Mary and Joseph as well. And if, if you're going to watch a Christmas movie this year, I would, I would recommend to you the movie that's simply called The Nativity Story. It came out in the early 2000s, and it is probably the one version or movie version of, of The Nativity that actually does a really good job of discussing and displaying just how difficult this must have been for Mary and Joseph to bear the stigma of of their society. And you know, when the angel says to Mary, do not be afraid, (laughs) he was saying that for a reason. There is going to be a lot of fearful things happening in her life, especially in the life of a young teenage girl over the coming months. And then after Jesus is born, let's jump to post-birth. After Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph take their newborn son to the temple to be dedicated, like all parents do. And there at the temple, this elderly priest, Simeon, sees the baby Jesus and immediately sees something very special and prophesies over him and recognizes that this baby must be the the long-awaited Messiah. And then he prophesies over Mary right after that. He turns to Mary and he says, this child is destined to cause the rising and the falling of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then he says, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Mary. He says that to Mary. And then of course, 32 years later, there is Mary at the foot of the cross, watching in intense pain and confusion with that sword run through her own soul, watching this mysterious, amazing, wonderful son of hers die a painful, horrible criminal's death. And there she is. Picture her there, watching and wondering, what's the point, right? Why the immaculate conception. Why all the angels? Why the shepherds and the heavenly hosts and the wise men? Why? What was it all for? And what has it all come to? And in spite of the hope that was prophesied over her at the birth and even by her Aunt Elizabeth, the evil and the corruption, the injustice and the hate of this world must have seemed so great that it has crushed and defeated whatever purpose and whatever good was supposed to come from this where's the blessing right 
Where's the blessing? How exactly is this finding favor in God's sight? Well, you know, in this world that is so broken and so often full of pain and abuse, confusion, sickness, death, maybe those aren't such bad questions. I, at least I think they aren't. Maybe they are unusual questions to ask at Christmas time, but you know what? Maybe this Christmas of all Christmases, it's a good time to ask questions like this. Why? The, the confusion, the difficulty of this year. And yet, you know what? It's not all that unusual. <laughs> I'm going to say this a few times over. It's not all that unusual that God works his blessing and his grace and his favor through what at first seems to be unusual circumstances. Even through unusual people and circumstances. It's not that unusual that sometimes God even works and brings his blessing, sometimes his greatest and, and blessing and, and hope and purpose through people who have been considerably bruised and wounded and broken in the course of life in this world. It's not all that unusual that out of difficulty, pain, dubious, unfair, even scandalous circumstances, God brings his grace into those circumstances, his favor and his blessing. To those who turn to him, right? Particularly to those who turn to him in the midst of the pain and the confusion of those circumstances, who turn and look to him. And in near desperation, hang on and trust in him and believe that nothing is impossible with God. And believe that what the Lord promises or what the Lord said will be accomplished. So let's take a little bit of a deeper look at this. I'd actually like to turn our attention now to Matthew chapter 1. And here in Matthew chapter 1, just before the, the nativity story takes place in Matthew, you have the genealogy of the ancestry of Jesus. This genealogy or family tree starts with Abraham, who lived roughly 2,000 years before Christ, and, and it covers 42 generations, 2,000 years. And it ends, of course, with Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. And one of the most fascinating things about this genealogy is that besides Mary, the very mother of Jesus, this genealogy, genealogy also contains four other women, four other women. And, and by the way, that in itself is kind of amazing because ancient genealogies didn't include women, <laughs> typically. And this one only includes four. This genealogy, four women. Specific women. Now surely that's not by accident. Surely that's just not random four women. These women were chosen to be mentioned in this genealogy. And there's a reason behind it. There's something that's being highlighted here in these four women. And you know, when you start to look at their stories and begin to understand who they are, you understand why it is them that is mentioned. The first thing that can be noted about all four of these women is that it seems that all four of them were foreigners. All four of them. None of them were actually Israelites. They were born foreigners. And, and when you consider how the Israelites tried to prevent their blood from mixing with the blood of other nations, it's at least interesting that the only four women mentioned in this genealogy are not Israelites. I mean, surely they could have mentioned four good Jewish girls here. 
but they didn't. All four are foreigners who would normally have been thought of as second-class citizens among the people of Israel. These were the kind of things that one typically wanted to hide from their genealogy, not highlight, right? And yet, here in the scriptures, the honest scriptures, these four women are mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. God is not trying to hide them. He is intentionally trying to highlight them. Now, the other feature about all four of these women is something that they actually seem to have very much in common with Mary. They all have something that could be considered quite scandalous about their background. These four women (laughs) were only too acquainted with brokenness and with a certain amount of heartache and even unjust treatment by this world in their lives. They were beaten and damaged, in some cases tossed aside by the others in their life. And yet all of them were instrumentally chosen and used by God in the midst of their pain, chosen by him, blessed by him to be a part of bringing God's salvation to the world, the very world that had so hurt them. Chosen to be a part of the Lord's own, Christ's own genealogy. So let's take a quick look at all four of them. The first one is Tamara. Um, And her story is probably the least known of all of these women. She is presumably a Canaanite, although it doesn't say for sure, but she comes from that region. And in Genesis chapter 38, starting in verse 6, you find her story. And I'm going to warn you, it's not a nice story. It is not a nice story. In fact, this story comes at the heart of a very troubling time of history for the children of Jacob. This is Genesis 38. In Genesis 37, you remember what happened in Genesis 37? Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. Instead of killing him, which is what they were going to do, they chose instead to sell him into slavery to get rid of him. These were dark days for the children of Israel, for the children of Jacob. And then in the very next chapter, we find this story. And I'm going to read it for you. Judah was the fourth son of of, uh, Jacob. Judah found a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamara. But Judah's firstborn, Ur, grievously offended God, and God took his life. He must have done something bad, really bad. So Judah told Onan, go and sleep with your brother's widow. It is the duty of a brother-in-law to keep your brother's line alive. But Onan knew that the child wouldn't be his. So whenever he slept with Tamar, he spilled his semen on the ground so that he would not produce a child for his brother. But God was much offended by what he did and took his life also. So Judah, the father, Judah stepped in and told Tamar, live as a widow at the home of your father until my son Shelah grows up. But He was worried that Shelah would also end up dead, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live with her father. Time passed. Judah's own wife, who was also a Canaanite, Judah's own wife died. When the time of mourning had passed, was over, Judah went to Timnah for the sheep shearing. 
Tamar was told of this, that her father was going to Tim, her father-in-law was going to Timnah. So she took off her widow's clothes, put on a veil to disguise herself, and sat on the road leading to Timnah. She realized by now that even though Shelah was a grown man, she was not going to be married to him. Judah saw her on the road and assumed that she was a prostitute, since she had a veil over her face. He left the road and went to her and said, Let me sleep with you. He had no idea that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you pay me? He said, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, not unless you give me a pledge that I could hold until you send it. So what do you want in a pledge, he asked. She said, your personal seal and cord and the staff that you carry. He handed them over to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant. Another Dubious, scandalous pregnancy. Three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamor, has been playing the whore, and now she is a pregnant whore. Judah yelled, get her out here and burn her to death. As they brought her out, she sent a message to her father-in-law saying, I am pregnant by the man who owns these things. Identify them, please. Who is the owner of this seal and cord and this staff? Judah saw that they were his and said, She is more righteous than I, since I would not give to her my son Shelah. And he never slept with her again. Oh my goodness. Those truly are not the bits of family history that one wants to reveal or even point towards. And yet God does not hesitate to reveal it in the lineage of his own son, Jesus. He chooses to put Tamar in the list. In this story, it is very important to recognize that Tamar was being incredibly unjustly treated. Her first husband was obviously a louse and likely abused her and died for it and left her a destitute woman without a child. And in that day, that was a terrible prospect. And by law, her, her brother-in-law was supposed to stand in for his dead brother, become her husband, and provide the offspring, both to keep the lineage alive, but also to care in the future for this mother, <laughs> to, in order to keep her alive in her widowed years, in her elderly years. And in God's plan of things, here's the other thing that God's planning already. In his foreknowledge, God is already planning to run the lineage of the Messiah through this woman. And here is this son who is trying to thwart this plan. Right? This was part of God's ultimate plan of salvation for the whole world. And this man, this brother, out of selfish, petty reasons, wasn't going to go through with it. He was going to try to thwart the whole thing and leave Tamara destitute. And unbeknownst to him, he was also trying to cut off the lineage of what was to lead to the Messiah. And it's likely that why God was so upset with him and brought a swift end to his life. And then after that death, Judah was going to also deny Tamar and deny God by withholding his third and last son from Tamar. It seems that Judah had become fearful and he, he didn't want to risk his third son now to this woman. And perhaps, I don't know, but perhaps he was thinking, I, I know I'm supposed to, by law, give my third son to this woman, but she's a foreigner anyways, right? 
She's not an Israelite, but what does it matter if she ends up destitute? And besides, she's, she seems cursed. <laughs> she's kind of a man killer. And, and she's a loser. And I don't want to risk my son. My last son can marry an Israelite girl, and whatever plans God has for us can be fulfilled through his offspring with another woman. But you know what? God had his own plans. God has his own purposes, and they would not be thwarted. That was not what God wanted. God saw fit, and God wanted to use this foreigner, this woman who was identified as some kind of a loser, a man-killer, and use her as part of his plan to redeem a lost and a hurting world that she could so identify with. God seems to like to do that kind of stuff, to take the most unlikely and use them. Now, I will admit that Tamara's methods seem, well, rather questionable, but she's also in an incredibly desperate position that we probably can't really identify with today. She was being denied justice. Her life was being set up for disaster and probably an early death. So she took some of the matters into her own hands, it seems, much, much like Abraham did when he was promised an offspring and his wife Sarah was barren, right? He took matters into his own hands. And yet, God was gracious. God still had compassion Right? And, and, and love for this dire woman in this dire situation. And God still has favor upon her and upon Abraham, he did. Still there is room for God's grace and God's favor to work his purposes in our lives in spite of ourselves even. And you know what? That's good news. That's really good news. Because we're all pretty prone, I think, to panic and to attempt our own plans to promote what we think God's purposes are. And thankfully, he so often still works through us in spite of ourselves, as he did with Tamara. Now the next woman in the genealogy is a, a, a better-known woman, Rahab. And she is certainly better-known. Rahab was a citizen of the city of Jericho, and when Joshua brought the Israelites out of the wilderness to the very doorstep of the land that he had promised them, only this fortified city of Jericho stood in their way of possessing the land that God promised them. And when Joshua sent two spies into that city of Jericho to see how best they could defeat the city, the spies were almost caught, right? And it was Rahab, it was this woman Rahab, the enemy of Israel, who dared to to choose against her own culture, against her own will. It was Rahab who somehow recognized that these armies were actually the armies of God and these, these people, these Israelites, were actually the people of God. And Rahab gave refuge and protection at great risk to herself to these two spies and she helped them escape. And because of her actions and her faith and trust in this God that she really didn't even know but knew was the true God, she was spared. In the fall of Jericho, she was spared, and she eventually married an Israelite, and she married right into the lineage of Jesus. And, and she carries on that lineage. Her son becomes the, one of the descendants of God's own son. And oh, by the way, I hadn't mentioned, Rahab was also famed for being the prostitute of Jericho. And I can only imagine the abuse and the pain and, and the hurt 
that must have come with that title, the prostitute of Jericho. It must have been a dire life for her. But because of her bold faith, God favored this battered and disgraced woman and used her to bring his salvation again to a world that had so hurt her. And then there's Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. And in the law of Moses, it says this about Moabites. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3, it says, No Ammonite or Moabite is to enter the congregation of God, even to the tenth generation, nor any of their children ever. (laughs) And Ruth was a Moabite. And yet, Ruth did, in fact, marry an Israelite. And when hardship struck her family, and in the form of a plague, every male member, in fact, almost every member completely of her family died with the exception of her and her Jewish mother-in-law, Naomi. In fact, Naomi even urged Ruth to go, to go back to her own people and warned her that she would not be accepted as a Moabite among the Israelites. But Ruth wouldn't leave her. Ruth... Ruth refused to leave her. She insisted upon taking care of Naomi. She was not going to leave Naomi as a childless widow. She was going to stay with her and help her no matter what it took. And there was no, as a foreigner, there was no obligation upon her, upon Ruth, to to stay with Naomi. And yet she gave herself to her mother-in-law to assist her in life and to sort of go it together in life. And she pledged to Naomi, she said this, where you go, I go. And where you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And where you die, I too will die. And so because of her honor and her self-sacrifice and because of her, her faithfulness to Naomi and to Naomi's God, Ruth is greatly blessed in her story. And in what is without a doubt the greatest love story in the Bible. (laughs) Ruth meets and marries another Jewish man named Boaz, who is part of the lineage of Jesus. And she has a son who in turn continues the lineage of Jesus. And that is how a despised Moabite made it into the genealogies of Jesus. And finally, there is Bathsheba, She's not mentioned by name in the genealogy, but she is mentioned as the the wife uh, of Uriah the Hittite. Now, Bathsheba might have actually the most painful of all four of these stories. She was sexually taken advantage of by King David. She was in absolutely no position to turn aside his advances. It was the ultimate case of someone in a power of a position of power and authority taking advantage of someone weaker and more vulnerable than they. It was ugly. It was an awful black smear in the life of a man, a king, who was otherwise known as a man after God's own heart. It it amazes me how honest the Bible is about its characters. Um, In the case of David, This was obviously a case where he was not pursuing God's own heart, but rather his own lust. And the story gets much worse. Bathsheba becomes pregnant, another dubious, scandalous pregnancy. 
And the whole time, her husband Uriah has been away fighting in the king's and David's army as a leader of David's army. And obviously, he could not be the one who got her pregnant because he wasn't even around. So to cover up, King David tries to bring home her husband from the war, give him leave so that he can sleep with his wife and make it look like he was the one who got her pregnant. But this guy, Uriah, he is so loyal to the king that he just wants to get back to the battle, back to the fighting, back to the men that he's supposed to lead. In fact, he, he will not sleep with his wife. He won't even enter his house. So he sleeps on the threshold, the outside of the door of his own house. He won't even go inside, refusing to enjoy the comforts that his men on the front lines cannot enjoy. So seeing that his plan is not going to work, David panics. And he has Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, killed in the thick of the battle. He intentionally orchestrates it so that Uriah will be killed by the enemy. And he is. And then David takes Bathsheba as his wife, as one of his numerous wives, and he thinks that he's covered his tracks. But these sorts of things, <laughs> they're never hidden from God, right? And David is confronted by God's prophet Nathan. The child that Bathsheba delivers dies shortly after birth, and she is devastated and broken. And why not? The sexual assault a murdered husband, and a dead baby. Of course she's devastated. And then at this point, David too is devastated, utterly devastated and convicted to the core for his horrible actions and sin. He repents to God. He is so, so broken and repentant before God. And no doubt, all of this is so far from what God's hopes were for these two people. And yet... This is what it's come to. But still, still, God is gracious. He still has compassion for the abused and the disadvantaged. And God forgives the honest, repentant sinner. He does. So God picks up the pieces of these two broken souls and he heals them. And God grants David and Bathsheba another child a son whose name is Solomon. And even though he is not David's oldest son, by the gracious will of God, he is the one who becomes the next king. And he is the one who will continue the lineage all the way down to Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. God wanted it that way, to pass it right through this broken but restored set of lives. You see, God has a habit of working through broken people. He just does. Hurting people. Even devastated people. He has a habit of working through the marginalized who turn to him in faith for hope and for help. That Mary should have suffered some abuse and endured some scandal actually puts her in pretty good company with the rest of Jesus' ancestry. And at her darkest point of pain and brokenness, there at the foot of the cross, where, where every instinct must be wanting to scream out, why? Why did it all come to this? This isn't right. This isn't fair. You know what? All Mary has to do is hold on, right? 
In her loss and in her pain and in her confusion, Mary, just hold on, hang on, cling in desperation to God and to the promises and the hidden purposes that God has for you, the blessing that he promised, the favor that he promised, the great things that he said he will do. Just hold on to them, even now, when it seems so lost. Just for three more days, Mary. Just hold on for three more days. Through the valley of the shadow of death. And you will see, you will see why and what it is all about. And you will understand just how immensely blessed and favored by God you were. And just how powerfully he used you and your son. Just three days. And he will rise. Right? And he will win victory over the curse of sin and death. And you will see that that terrible death that he died was to pay for the sins of the world and then to win victory and redemption for the world. Just hang on, Mary, three days, and you'll see it all unfold. And you'll know all what it's about. And she does. And she does. Blessed are you, Mary. Right? All generations will call you blessed because against all hope, against all ability to see it, you believed that what the Lord has said will be accomplished. You held on right through the valley of the shadow of death. So, what about us? (laughs) What about us? You know, It doesn't escape me that for many, many, many people, they identify Christmas as one of the most depressing seasons of the year for them. It's usually people that are largely alone, usually people that largely feel left out of family or left out of society. It's a difficult time for them. And you know, this year of all years, Christmas may be a particularly difficult time for many of us. The truth is, it is so because there is a lot of pain in life in this world, right? There just is. If, if I can quote one of my favorite movies, The Princess Bride, Princess Buttercup says to the dread pilot, Pirate Roberts, she, she says, you mock my pain. And then Dread Pirate Roberts responds by saying, life is pain, princess. Anyone who tells you otherwise is selling something. It's true. It's true. There is so much pain and brokenness in this world. Injustice. Confusion. Evil, even. The world seems overwhelmed by it sometimes. We might feel overwhelmed by it sometimes. Either outright evil or just despair. Or just disappointment. Do you feel yourself wondering why a lot? What's what's it all about sometimes? What's the purpose? Where's the good in this world and in this life for me? How is this fair? How is life fair? Where's God's blessing for me? Why does it all seem to have passed by me? Mary thought that. Tamar thought that. The others all thought that. 
Or maybe you feel that somehow you've just blown it too badly in life, messed up too badly, that God's purposes and plans for you must be long lost. Don't. Don't think that. Trust him. Instead, trust him. Turn to him. Or maybe in some cases from us, for some of us, it's, it's the idea of return to him if you've wandered away, right? And hang on. Desperately hang on if you have to. Hang on to him in hope and faith. Hang on to his promises because he's made promises to us. And you know what? It truly might get a lot darker before the dawn. It did for many of these women. But hang on anyways because what the Lord said he will accomplish, he will accomplish. Even, I dare say, even, especially in broken and suffering and hurting circumstances. Even for people who've been scandalized by their own actions or by the actions of others upon them, or just by turns of events in the world. Just hang on, and you will be blessed and favored beyond your imagination. There are so many promises in Scripture according to that. So many. I'm just going to mention two. Jeremiah 29.11. Famous passage in the midst of one of Israel's darkest segments of history that was still going to go on for 80 years, God said to these people, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future, beyond what you can see, beyond what you're expecting. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, it says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purposes. You know what? I wish I could tell you <laughs> that if, if you become a Christian or trust in God or have your faith in him, there will be no more pain in life. <laughs> that all the difficulty will be resolved and that you'll go on through the rest of life just as a breeze, no, no, no problem, no difficulty. But you know what? That would be trying to sell you something that isn't real, and that isn't true. But here is the truth. In pain and difficulty and even scandal, I can tell you that God has purposes and he has plans for those who trust him, for those who love him, for those who turn to him in the midst of those things or are even chastened by those things toward him for those who just hang on to him at those points in time, who believe that what the Lord said, he will accomplish. What the Lord said, he will accomplish. Do you believe that? Can you trust that? Can you hang on to that? Do. Because you don't have any better options. It's not like there's better directions to go in. Just hang on to him and see what great things he does, just like Mary did. She waited some 32 years to see what it would all be about, and when it looked its absolute worst was just when it was all about to turn into the glorious goodness and purposes of God that actually resulted in our own salvation. Amen? God bless you this Christmas, and look to that hope. Hang on to him. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.